Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. This is Josh Rosenberg, your host. I want to thank everyone for joining me for this special episode with Jordan Kurland. Really excited to be here. Thanks again for your support of uh, Roadcase. I really appreciate the messages and the uh, follows on social media and Instagram, etc. Uh, it really means a lot to me. I'm so glad that you're along for the journey. Uh, I want to remind everyone, everybody, if you do want to get involved with the Roadcase community, there's a couple of really great and easy ways you can do that. Uh, number one is to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Roadcase Pod is the handle. Uh, we also have a website, roadcasepod.com. You can find out little tidbits about the show, where you can listen, and uh, a little bit more about me uh, if you're so interested. You could also, another great way of getting involved with Roadcase is to email me. Love getting emails, and I appreciate all of those that have uh, sent me uh, emails with messages and questions. Uh, you know, send me comments, concerns, suggestions for guests, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm at info at Roadcase Pod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. Uh, for example, iTunes uh, is really popular and you can rate and review on iTunes simply by scrolling down to the bottom and there's a place to rate and review and that's really helpful and I really appreciate that support. Jordan Curlin, whom I have on Roadcase this week, is a co-founder and partner at Brilliant Corners Artist Management. Uh, they manage acts such as Death Cab for Cutie, Real Estate, Pup, Soccer Mommy, among others. Uh, Jordan's also a partner at Noise Pop, who's a Bay Area promoter and production company. He's also a co-founder of the Treasure Island Music Festival. Jordan's also very politically oriented and is not afraid to get out there and voice his opinion in one way or the other. Uh, he's worked with the author Dave Eggers uh, to raise over half a million dollars uh, in advance of the 2020 election for such causes as Fair Fight, Color of Change, and Voting Rights Lab. Jordan, uh, in my mind, is a model of independent artist development. I love that. Uh, he is also, in his own words, attracted to authenticity. And anyone that has listened to this podcast knows that that's a great uh, cause and interest of mine. And I found Jordan uh, so refreshing and interesting to talk to in terms of his own commitment to what he believes is really what is authentic and what artists are producing uh, their authentic selves out there. Um, loved talking to Jordan a uh, little bit about the timing of this was the interview took place around uh, end of May so in this time period of live music where we have so much changing because we're coming back we're having music's coming back online and um, 
you know, we've got so many things that are changing, so many moving pieces. Uh, just wanted to give you a little context, and I'll do that with every episode now in terms of timing. Once again, I want to thank everybody for being a part of the Roadcase community. Thanks again for uh, your listening to this episode. And I want to thank Jordan Curlin again for being here on Roadcase. And here we go. Um, okay, Jordan, thanks for joining me. As I told you off the air, now I'm going to tell you on the air, I'm completely jealous that you have this great view in San Francisco, but thanks for joining me on yeah. Roadcase. I really yeah. appreciate you being here. Yeah. yeah, thank you for having me. And not to make you more jealous, it's actually a house, not an apartment. But, uh, you know. That was my that was my poor assumption. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, like, I right. just like, you, okay. you get into this. Yeah. Oh, doesn't everyone live in a condo slash apartment? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. San Francisco is a land, you know, many houses, many, many homes. All right. Um, but yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's, it's nice to, uh, nice to meet you. Yeah. Good to meet you too. Um, and you do so many amazing things like you're, 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 you're promoting and you're, um, you're politically active and you've um, co-founded uh, Treasure Island that we can talk about what's up with that now um, or if yeah. there's nothing up with that. But um, how did you originally w like and you grew up also in Chicago where I'm located yeah. and you found yourself in California yeah. um, right out of school. Were you in the music business? Was it kind of like a, a traditional kind of organic sort of process for you or how did that happen? Well, I, um, I was always a big, big music fan starting at age six, but mm -hmm. I never played an instrument. I was, um, very focused on sports when I was growing up and I never really tried very hard to play an instrument. So mm -hmm. I can't say that I wasn't good. I don't think I had a natural inclination, but, um, towards it, but I, um, but when I was in college, I started writing album reviews for a school magazine. I went to Pitzer College in Claremont, which is mm -hmm. about 35 miles east of LA. And through that, you know, this is not to date myself, but this is early 90s. So it's, you know, pre-internet. You know, I just had never really given any thought to the music industry. I mean, I had the bands I loved and I, you know, had records and CDs and, you know, there were labels on them, you know, MCA records or Geffen records or whatever, or sub pop records didn't really mean anything to me um, at that point. But yeah. when I started writing reviews, all of a sudden I, I was getting pitched over the phone by college reps hmm. from labels. And that's when a light bulb kind of went off that, oh, wait, you know, maybe I could be, there's a business here. Maybe I can work around music. Mm -hmm. And that sent me on a path. I, I interned um, for a summer in New York in a management company. I My senior year, I spent both semesters interning at two record labels in LA. You know, one of the nice things about being close to LA was I could do that. Although it was about a two hour commute in, uh, in traffic on the, on the I-10, um, <laughs> each way. Wow. And, um, but I interned at Geffen records at a very fruitful time for Geffen. And then I interned at a smaller label called Imago records, which no longer exists. And I started booking shows on campus and just, finding my way in the business and making contacts. I started managing an artist, uh, uh, 
a friend who was a year younger than me that self-released a CD, which was not easy to do in the early nineties, mm-hmm. mid to yeah. early nineties. Right. Um, artist named, artist named Matt Nathanson, who I worked with for 18 years and we had a hit song together in 2008. Come uh-huh. get higher. Wow. And, um, you know, it's, uh, but that, that's where it started. And then I graduated, moved into LA, took the typical entry level, get your foot in the door music industry gig. I was answering phones at ASCAP, the performance rights society. And that was going to lead to an assistant position and then maybe a membership director position, which is a good, good opportunity. You meet everybody. Yeah. Um, however, two weeks into that job, which I did four interviews for, to get that receptionist job. Um, <laughs> wow. Two weeks into the job. They're really, they're, well, they're, they're, they're really screening they're heavy into you the vetting the process there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they're really screening you for it to for be future you know, work yeah. employee. That's going to work up. Right. And, you know, not to go too far into, off on a tangent, but the, um, you know, at ASCAP, the way it worked is, you know, a lot of, once you became a membership director, a lot of those membership directors eventually went on to, to be A&R guys, right? And it, it just worked out that way. So you're kind mm-hmm. of, it was a great feeder gig if that's what you wanted to do. And, but two weeks into it, I got a phone call from a company here in San Francisco uh, called David Lovequitz Management. I'd sent my resume after graduating from college. I booked one of their bands at Pitzer. And I came up here for President's Day weekend, 1995, an interview. And I was mm-hmm. really excited because they managed one of my favorite bands at the time, which was Primus. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to work in management. I um, and I had a lot of close friends from college who had moved to San Francisco. So, you know, although it was a little counterintuitive, given that the music industry back then was even more based in L.A. and New York than it is now. Um, but it felt like an opportunity that if I got the job, I could move to San Francisco for a year or two, really get to know the community, the scene the cl- up here and then move back to L.A. or New York and have a knowledge that most people don't have. Yeah. Um, but I fell in love with the city, met my ex-wife, fell in love with San Francisco, really wanted to to make it work here. So when I started my own company in 1999, which was called Zeitgeist Artist Management, I, you know, I stayed. And that was um, and that was the uh, that was the uh, that's that's the the medium version, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. um, Wow. Like you went from uh, basically <laughs> you went from writing, um, <clears throat> sorry, writing reviews on albums in college to working at ASCAP and then working at a management company. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you yeah. made the you made a lot of the, the right steps. I mean, that's pretty impressive to have worked at ASCAP. And, and uh, you also said you mentioned Geffen Records in there at some point also. Well, well, I interned for a semester you mm-hmm. know, a couple of days a week that they that really they had a really good internship program, you know, having, you know, cause I think I did a total of three internships and Geffen had a very organized internship program and it was great. It was the same fall that in utero came out. The first current crows record came out, you know, Sonic mm-hmm. youth was on the label. The Sundays were on the label. The whole first whole record for Geffen was being set up. I mean, they were, you know, guns and roses, the spaghetti incident came out. They were a big, big label. At that yeah. Point. Big. Wow. Right. And, um, it was great. And, you know, I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, you know, am I good at my job? Sure. I feel like I'm good at my job, but there's so much luck involved in this business. I mean, any business, but really mm-hmm. in this business, luck and timing, you know, is, is, is a big part of it. And, 
I was I was fortunate that I made some of the right decisions at the right time. Yeah, what was like the the key thing, the key decision that you made at that point? I think the idea to well, I mean I moving to San Francisco wasn't an obvious idea. Again, you know, even back then, it was really just, you know, I mean, my first email account I had when I moved to San Francisco in 1995. And, you know, it just was so much, I mean, it's still so largely based in LA, New York and Nashville, but it's more spread out now because of technology. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, it was a great decision both to really get some experience in management, management, which is what I knew what I knew what I wanted to do and really allowed me to, you know, build a company, work with artists without getting caught up in a lot of the, it's an appropriate word for it, you know, getting caught up with what labels are signing in LA and New York, really kind of build up a roster of unique artists and not feel like, oh, I need to go to, you know, I need to go to Spaceland tonight or the Viper Room tonight because there's a band playing and there's 40 A&R people showing up and I need to try to get in there and manage them. You know, um, it was maybe more of a circuitous path. It maybe took a little bit longer, mm-hmm. but um, I feel like it definitely shaped how I built my company and the type of artists we work with. So. Oh, like what was the key factor and like looking back that you've carried forward to the, in in order you've been able to shape your own company the way that it sounds like you're saying that you were able to really shape it the way that you wanted to from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, not that it wouldn't be possible in LA or New York or Nashville, but I just, just a, was able to avoid some of the noise, you know, of, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in, well, this is what labels are signing now, or, you know, here's a band that, you know, 10 other managers are trying to sign, you should get in there. And not that that doesn't happen sometimes, but, um, you know, really it just being a little bit separate from that, the daily, the, the, the daily, um, you know, circuit of that, I think, and allowed me to be more patient and having, and, and really try to work with stuff that I wanted to work with. Not that that's, I mean, the goal of being a manager for me was to be able to work with stuff I wanted to work with, but it was really just more suited for my, allowed me to work with things that were more suited for my tastes rather than feeling pressure to go after something because there's some so much attention around it. Right. Well, how long were you, um, you said you were with David Lefkowitz and then um, mm. h- how long did it take for you to sort of start repping your own artists and moving in that direction? Well, I started, I brought Matt Nathanson with me, you know, but I did that as a side hustle. You know, mm-hmm. I would call and try to get him shows. I mean, that was really kind of the job at that point, try to get labels interested. I mean, obviously now looking back, he wasn't ready for that, but, um, but yeah. And then when I was 24, so I started working with Dave. I was almost 23. It was March of 1995. I started managing my first client that I had some near misses, but the first client that was signed to a major label, I started managing just before I turned 25 years old, a man named Creeper Lagoon. And they were signed to DreamWorks Records. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I was still working for David and that was done through his office and, and, uh, but you know, I, I was able to, it was great. You know, it wasn't, I didn't, I knew some, I mean, you know, looking back, I was so green, but mm-hmm. it was, it was, you know, it was great for me, really opened things up for me. And then I picked up a band called Beulah, which ended up being a pretty big cult indie rock band, um, in the late nineties. And, and then I started Zeitgeist in 1999. My roster was Creeper Lagoon, Beulah and Matt Nathanson. And I had started working on the Noise Pop Festival at that point, too. Oh, really? So I brought that with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So were you managing bands at that point? Or, yeah. And that included... Yeah, that, but that, that included also booking them live acts, et cetera, live, well, live shows? Or how did that... What did that actually look like at the beginning for you? Well, so I also... I should mention I was managing a band called Crumb, who were a couple guys I went to college with, too, mm-hmm. that I brought into David Lefkowitz's office. And... Um, I left with them as well. So managing then, you know, it was no longer, I think Matt Nathanson, I was still booking because no booking agent wanted to book him. <laughs> yeah. So we were, it was, it was tough, you know, male singer songwriter in the late nineties. It was not, you know, it wasn't an easy sell, unfortunately. Uh-huh. And, um, but you know, we were, you know, the job of a manager doesn't really, I mean, what you're doing changes, but the role of a manager remains the same, which with, with, no matter who you're working with, which is, you know, the buck stops with us. And, you know, the analogy I make is we're like a general contractor. If you're building a house, right. You know, we make sure the rest of the team is, we make decisions with our clients and then make sure the rest of the team's doing their job. Right. You know, um, at the end of the day, our goal is to get exposure for our, our, the artists we work with and their music so that, you know, the general public can vote ultimately. Right. You know, whether, you know, it used to be voting by buying records. Now it's voting, you know, it's always been voting about buying concert tickets and now it's voting by streams. So our goal is to try to get exposure, you know, and try to, you know, in a way that makes sense for our clients and is in line with who they want to be and how they want to get there. Um, You know, and when you're working with smaller artists at that point, you know, the team obviously grows a lot as an artist grows, you Mm -hmm. know, the, the amount of the amount of people you're working with. But the job's always the same, ultimately. You know, it's just as an artist gets more successful, you're just talking to more people, basically. So, hmm. Well, so that's interesting. Does it <clears throat> is there a point in the progression of an artist and the progression of your representation of an artist? Is there a point that's most interesting for you as a manager? Like, is there more, is it more intriguing I mean, at the beginning when you've got a like when, when it's kind of up in the air and you're sort of pushing, but small well, victories are more important to you? What does that look like? I think it's changed, you know, I think it's all exciting, you know, you know, cause a small victory for one artist is a big victory for another artist. Right. You know, if you're an artist starting out, mm-hmm. you know, so I think the most exciting time and I would, I would guess that most managers would feel the same way about this, but the most exciting time is when something starts to really connect, when something just starts to just really, you just feel it spreading and growing and you know you want to kind of stoke the fire but also get out of its way so you don't extinguish it that's the most exciting time i think right and you know it doesn't happen i mean for some managers maybe it happens all the time but (laughs) you know for 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 you know me it's you know it doesn't happen all that often right you know it's it's you know it's death cab with transatlanticism into plans it was um the first she and him record it was you know when we managed the head and the heart it was that first head and the heart record mm-hmm. just things where 
you just, you can do all the same things for two different artists and one artist, you know, ends up two miles up the road and the other artist ends up 50 feet up the road, you know? And that's what I mean about the court of public opinion, right? You just, you try to get as much, you know, you try to get your artists as much place, as many, you try to get your artists seen, heard, experienced so that people could then decide. And that's ultimately, that's when it becomes out of your hands, right? And, you know, when people are deciding that they really like something or love something, that's, that's really, that's a really incredible feeling and moment. Yeah. You know, it's validation for the artist. It's validation for me. It's validation for our staff. Right. And, and then you talked about trying that you also had to kind of get out of the way at the right point. What does that actually look yeah. like? What do you mean by that? Well, you just, just not overthinking it because <laughs> the reality is when something starts to really go, it has a momentum of its own. And if you start trying to overthink it or steer it, you know, you might steer it into a, into a pole or a wall. Don't try to right? overmanage. Yeah. I mean, we have to help our clients make the right decisions. We have to, you know, make sure that, you know, the record labels, you know, not misrepresenting, you know, an artist, vice versa. But it's just, you know, so it's never stops. It's never like, oh, this song's, you know, this song's a hit. Drop, you know, drop everything. We don't have to do anything. It's no, there's, you just manage it differently. What I'm saying is more of like, you know, when a song comes along, you know, you know, there's an expression that like, I don't remember the expression, but it is something along the lines of like a hit song will always find its way. Right. I don't know right, if that's right. true or not, but our goal is so that if there's, is to give the hit, hit song the opportunity to find its way, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, and how, how important is the, the live show and their, you know, an artist's ability to, you know, hold an audience and, um, perform that, how important is that to you as a, as a manager? Well, f for the stuff we manage, it's very important. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, the type of artists we manage and which is primarily rock. Yeah. You know? I mean, we have primarily indie rock to be more specific. Mm -hmm. It's obviously not that, you know, I mean, doesn't all fall, fall in that box, but if you're going to do the wide genre, you know, it's indie rock. So it's important. You know, yeah. there's been a lot of bands that have had, you know, successful records and couldn't really play live and it hurts them ultimately, especially in this day and age, I feel like, you know, um, so it's, it's important, you know, it might not be for every type of artist, but you know, we're not in the business of, you know, getting stuff, you know, signing stuff to try to get it on pop radio or trying to get it, you know, it's the, the type of things we manage, you know, the touring side of it and the live music side of it's very, very important. Yeah, I mean, I love the. I mean, obviously, this is what I do. I love the excitement of a live show. I like yeah. to. I want to explore that as much as I can, you know. And um, uh, it's always intriguing to me um, the the attractiveness of an act, just of a band um, being able to play live and what they bring to the table uh, for that. Especially today, when it becomes such an integral part of who a band is and and makes your job somewhat. I would dare say almost easier if they're, if they're really throwing down in a live setting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's it is if it's a great live performance, you know, look, I mean, you could have a great live band that doesn't make, you know, the records don't match up. I think that happens a lot too. Mm -hmm, yeah. But you know, so people might, you know, go see them live, but not really be interested in the records. You know, for most bands, that might be limiting for how far their live audience can grow. 
Um, but you know, other bands, you know, particularly I think jam bands, that doesn't matter as much. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but for rock bands, you know, you could, you know, ideally you're adept at doing both. Right. You know, and that's the, the ideal situation. That's the sweet spot, the right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the live show just furthers it. And especially now with festival culture being such a, I should say now, well, coming out of COVID, assuming festival culture is still going to be such a right, big impact, right, right. will, you know, yeah. it's really important, you know, that's a really important growth engine for artists. Yeah. So on, on that line, um, talk to me about the, uh, about Noise Pop Fest and about uh, uh, where you, um, you know, about Treasure Island, although Treasure Island has kind of ceased to, to be a thing now. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, we folded the sails, so to speak, on, on, uh, on that <laughs> ship yeah, to yeah. Treasure Island. We, we had a great run. I think, um, you know, when we started Treasure Island in 2007, we were the first festival in the Bay Area like that. There wasn't, you know, Outside Land started in 2008. And our goal was really to have a boutique music festival. I mean, our, our kind of our, you know, internal motto was, you know, a music festival that we'd want to go to, mm-hmm. you know, where it was, you know, manageable size crowd. It wasn't, you know, 50 bands you know was you could see every band throughout the day yeah um you know have more of a you know geared more towards the you know a little bit more of a discerning music fan Mm -hmm. and it worked you know it didn't didn't it didn't you know sell out every year but we had a really good run yeah i love that i love the line i was looking at all the lineups i'm more of a day two person than a day one person overall yeah i'd have to say although i you know i I would go for sure and learn something and enjoy it yeah well and it worked i mean you know that happened by accident you know the first year just trying to confirm headliners and how it wound up with who we had we're like maybe we should just try this and that was a novel idea too and Mm. you know the hope was that people would go for you know who maybe weren't big electronic dance music fans would give would give that day a shot you know and Mm -hmm. quote unquote indie rock day the same thing and we tried to like throw in a couple things each day that could have gone on either day yeah but in the reality it's like yes we did sell a good amount of two-day passes but it was more more segregated by audience you know type of music you like Um, yeah but it was really great it was really fun i'm proud of what we did um, you know, for a variety of factors, it was time to end it. You know, everything runs its course. And yeah. What was the reason why? <clears throat> well, the main reason is Treasure Island. And we knew this when we started there in 2007 was they were developing mm. the West Lawn, which is where we held our event every year. Right. And <clears throat> so we didn't know if we were going to get three years or 10 years on the island. And we got 10 years. And then after the 10th year, uh, the 10th year was the only year we ever had really bad weather. It rained. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't fun. And then we took a year off and we tried to move to a new location and it just didn't make sense. I mean, it just, the marketplace had changed both in terms of fans, the festival marketplace had changed locally, nationally. You know, when we started, we went, we did it in the fall because we were one of the few festivals that was actually, were in, you know, that fell in the fall versus the summer or the spring. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you fast forward 10, 11 years and the festival marketplace had grown so much. There was a festival like every weekend starting in April, basically, that people could go, not necessarily in San Francisco, but it started to really eat away at people coming up here for the festival, mm-hmm. you know, because you can go any, you know, just in it, it, festival overload. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was a big part of it, but it was great. And I'm really proud of what we did there. And, you know, 
you know, another planet entertainment, who's a big promoter here and the big independent promoter here in the Bay area was our partner all those years and they were wonderful to work with. And I just think it's, you know, it, it, I, it's, I mean, I wish it was still going. I wish there was still a reason it was going, you know, I mean, the demand was there or whatever, but it just, it was time to try, time to, time to, time to uh, pull up the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a so, tough decision for you? Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it wasn't only my decision. You know, we had partners and I had mm-hmm. partners in Noise Pop and we had partners, you know, but it, it was the right thing. Right. You know, you just, you just can kind of tell. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and in, in hindsight, we probably should have just called it after we had to leave the island and relaunched a whole new brand. But we just, we, we debated that a lot. Do we keep calling it Treasure Island? Do we this? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying that that 11th year would have done any better or worse if we had just called it something else. But I think we just should have reimagined it more rather than thinking we could take that experience and put it in a new location and still have the same results. So, so nose pomp is a, is a, it's a smaller kind of collective festival that you've, that you've done for a while. I'm trying to get my arms around it a little bit. Yeah. It's just a small club festival. Basically Uh when it started really, Kevin started in 1993. There was an off night at a venue that no longer exists called the kennel club, which is now the location that the independent is in. Oh, okay. And, and, um, there was an off night and Kevin was, you know, asked if he wanted to put together a show by the promoter there. And he did. And he put together a show, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of indie power pop bands. Mm-hmm. Because in 1993, this is before I lived here, but 1993, it was very much, the scene here was very much dominated by, you know, Primus and Primus type bands. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of diverse, kind of funk, sort of rock. And so that was, you know, um, and then he continued doing it and he built it out. And I, when I came in, started working with them in 1997, um, you know, I helped him build out the festival. You know, he was, he was doing, you know, one show a night basically at, you know, at different venues over the course of three or four days. And then we just, we, we kept expanding it. And now, now we usually have, you know, upwards of a hundred bands, about half Mm -hmm. of them local and the other half touring. We work with most venues in town that are, you know, kind of, you know, 2,500 cap. Most of the shows fall into less than 1,000 cap venues, but we do do some shows at, you know, the Masonic or the Fox or some of the, you know, the Warfield kind of more in the two 2,500 cap range too. But it's really just small club festival, celebration of independent music, ultimately. Do, do you generally rep a lot of these bands or it's just... No. Something yeah, that you've yeah, no. you've just put together as you've gone along, as in terms of a smaller festival that you've enjoyed yeah. doing, and what are kind of the <clears throat> what are some of the benefits for you to for doing this? I mean, it's, it was it's it's it keeps me connected, you know, to the local music scene. It keeps me connected to up and coming national bands. Um, you know, I have had, I mean, some of my clients do play it and, you know, I've developed relationships with bands through it. Um, you know, I'm pretty hands off at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a partner and I'm on the partner calls every week and I'm strategic Mm -hmm. with Kevin, but you know, for years I booked it and sold the sponsorship and did, it was just him and I, and I was doing a lot of it because he had a day job working in tech and I was the one who was working in the music industry. So I had more freedom in my schedule to do something in the day. 
So I booked it for years and that was great because I met a lot of booking agents and I made relationships with a lot of bands. I mean, Def Cab played noise pop twice before I managed them, you know? Oh, okay. So, uh-huh. you know, it wasn't like this strategic thing of, oh, I'm going to book this band and manage them someday. It's just, you know, helped build a relationship with them, which right. was really nice. And well, yeah. speaking of that, how did that occur with Def Cab? If you weren't, um, how did you, how did they um, find you as a, as management? Well, so I met those guys pretty soon after they released their first record, something about airplanes. I was at North by Northwest Music Festival, which there was a period of time where South by Southwest was trying to do festivals outside of Austin, and one was North by Northwest in Portland. And uh, okay. a woman I knew who was a publicist living in Seattle named Barbara Mitchell told me, she said, you know, go see this band. They just put out a CD. They're great. So I remember I was there with my, at the time it was my girlfriend, now my ex-wife and with Kevin, my partner, noise pop. And we got in a rental car and drove over to, drove over to, um, the venue. I don't remember which venue it was, unfortunately, but I ended up missing the show and buying a CD. My, my ex-wife <laughs> bought the CD from, I think it was Chris Walla, former guitarist, founding mm-hmm. member guitarist, producer, Def Cap, mm-hmm. um, who was selling it. And it turns out there were big fans of this band Crumb that I was managing. Mm. And we connected on that front. I put them on some Crumb dates. I booked their first ever show in San Francisco at Bottom the Hill. They opened for Crumb. Their second ever show at San Francisco was a Great American Music Hall opening, a show that was Granddaddy, Creeper Lagoon, um, a band called Fiverr, Death Cab, and Rodriguez, which was M. Ward's old band. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's that was you know and and then i just you know the relationship when they would come to town i would see them i'd go to shows we'd hang out we had a friendship and they were self-managed for the first five years Uh and then in 2003 when they felt like they needed to bring a manager in you know they were a big indie rock band at that point i mean they were selling 50 60 thousand records which right i mean but they weren't you know they're far from a household name but they felt like they needed help and um there were a lot of managers interested, of course. And, you know, thankfully, because I was, you know, they really value friendship and loyalty. They hired me, you know, gave me a shot because at that point, and I'm not going to lie, I was struggling. You know, I had managed a number of bands who got a lot of critical acclaim, but never really got over the hump for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And when I, um, you know, the, the analogy I use, I've used before and I'll use it again is I felt like a painter who never had the right canvas. So, hmm. um, you know, I, you know, with death cab, when they hired me, they were immediately my biggest band. And this was before transatlanticism came out and then transatlanticism came out in fall of 2003. I think they hired me in August of 2003. The record came out in the fall, 2003, October, 2003. And it just first week sales kind of doubled what we all expected. And it just kept going from there, you know, and that record's almost platinum now. So, um, you know, on, on Barsook. Well, what did you mean by the the analogy, the artist with a canvas? I mean, what's your, what are, well, what I just, are I just felt like I, I just, I felt like I knew how to manage and I just wasn't getting the right opportunity or the right opportunity at the right time that allowed me to show that I had the ability to manage something that was going to grow. Right. That's, that's what I felt like. Yeah. Interesting. And, so, so, so the, the fact that you had a, a lot of artists who kind of didn't get over the hump did not deter you yep. from feeling like you were like you didn't kind of think that you weren't doing anything that you were doing something wrong at that point. 
you were you had the confidence that you knew what you were doing was the was was the right thing and you just needed somebody to to take them there yeah i was 31 and you know i believed in all my artists i mean mm-hmm. there was, i mean i'd be lying but i didn't have self-doubt but i did feel like i was good you know i felt like at that point i just wanted the opportunity to see and ultimately prove if i was good or not right mm-hmm. and yeah. you know and i that's where i said earlier is that there's luck involved in timing you know that um it 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 uh you know, whatever the expression is, you know, about tie, about talent and preparation, you know, like I, I had the opportunity and it worked out and, you know, yeah. just like everyone else who's been in this business for a long time. I mean, there's a lot of great people, talented people with great taste of music who didn't get the break and are no longer in the business, you know? So I don't pretend I'm any better or worse than they are. I just, I, it worked out for me. You know. Do you feel lucky? Yes, I do. How so? Well, I mean, I don't know a lot of people who figured out what they wanted to do for a living their junior year in college and are still doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. 49 years old, which is what I'm going to be 49 next week. And well, not only that, um, I mean, you've kind of sort of, um, you've stumbled upon a couple of really great opportunities, but I, it sounds like that you were prepared for those opportunities and they yeah. panned out for you because of that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. If I was bad at my job, I would not still be doing my job at the level I'm doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But there is luck involved. Anyone who tells you there is not luck involved in being successful in the music business, whether you're an artist or a manager or a record label, is lying. Because we all we could do is try to predict what someone's going to like. You know. Yeah, we, there's um, that, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, look, bands. You know. Our band, Death Cab did not set out to be, look, I mean, obviously Death Cab is, they're not the Foo Fighters. They're not, you know, um, thankfully they're not Imagine Dragons, you know, but it's just, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't set out to be as successful as they are, you know, and they just stayed true to what they wanted, the music they wanted to write and create in the moment caught up with them, you know, and right. I think there's a lot of bands from that era you know, the bands from that era of indie rock that are still doing really well, you know, Spoon, Shins, Modest Mouse. I mean, none of those bands really changed what they were doing at that point. It's just that culture shifted, you know, and that's something you can't predict. You know, maybe some people can, but could we have predicted that there's going to be a character on a very popular soap opera like TV show called The OC that was going to tout indie rock bands? And that, you know, the iTunes store was going to, you know, open shortly before that. And that um, Pitchfork was going to become a thing, as powerful as a thing. Like the, these things lined up for this community of artists at a period mm-hmm. of time. And it worked. And that's how it always works, though, right? But it just, anyone who says they saw Modest Mouse float on coming would be lying, you know? And that, that really open everything you know without float on death cab probably doesn't sign to a major label who knows if anyone cares about the arcade fire the way they care about the about the arcade fire you know it's just yeah but this is how it always is right you know anyone who says that they could have seen daft punk's performance of coachella open the floodgates for electronic music is probably lying too you know it's just there's these cultural shifts that happen and you know i think as a manager 
for me, I just work with stuff I love. And obviously at this point, you know, we have a staff and we, tr- we make try to make educated decisions about things we manage, about we feel like we can do well by them. Mm-hmm. We feel like we can help them grow and achieve their career goals. And we also have to, you know, make sure we think it's going to be something that will make money ultimately because we are a business. But, you know, a lot of these shifts happen and they're, they're relatively unexpected, you know, and... Um, I, that was certainly the case with Indie Rock in the year, you know, 2003, 2004. And, you know, I had been managing Indie Rock bands for a number of years at that point, And I never expected, I never, as much as I believed in all my bands, I never expected it to open up the way it did. So. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I keep thinking about how, I keep wanting to ask you if you think it's harder to be a manager and an artist or an artist. <laughs> Um, because you're kind of picking, you're, you're sort of going with what you love. You have to kind of go with what you love to like your job, right? I mean, or, yeah. or you, you couldn't manage a bands that you don't, whose music you don't like. Um, yeah. But you also have, <clears throat> have to have skills as a manager. And there's luck involved only in the sense of these trends that you're talking about, right? And then if all of a sudden these trends align with bands that you're following and they they can catch on in, in, in somewhat of a bigger way, then you can yeah. it kind of really makes a difference that way. And it's 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 sort of it's it's very interesting the way it's kind of like riding a tide. We manage stuff, my company, myself, we manage stuff that we love. Right. I you know, I'm sure there's some managers out there who are more cavalier about it or the more you know they're just gonna manage something that they think could be successful and that's what they're that's what's exciting to them Mm -hmm. you know and there's nothing wrong with that i mean there's certainly very very successful a and r guys presidents of record labels who've signed all different types of artists not because they particularly love the what that artist's doing is because they think they can be successful right um you know that's not how we operate you know for good or bad You know, does, could I have made more, could we be making more money? Could we be, you know, who knows? But we kind of, you know, again, the reason, one of the prevailing factors of why I became an artist manager is I wanted to be able to choose what I worked with and worked on. Mm-hmm. Because if not, you know, if I'm just going to kind of work whatever's handed me, there's a lot more, there are a lot easier ways to make money than doing it as an artist manager in the music business. But, you know, returning to your question about what's harder as an artist or manager, I think an artist, because I don't, you know, I don't have to tour. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to put my art out into the world to be voted on. Um, and, and I don't have to, I get more shots, right? Like, yeah. you know, I can manage multiple bands at a time. You know, if you're an artist, you're doing what you're doing. And if that doesn't work, maybe you transition and you do something else. So, right, right. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, look, you're for your booking agent, you get more shots than I do. Right. Because your booking agent could have exponentially more clients because they're not doing, you know, they're not handling all aspects of an artist's career. They're just booking shows. I'm not saying just booking shows like it's not hard, but it is hard. Yeah. Just, yeah. No, no, no. More, There's like, a different, different, econ- There's different more, economies of scale for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You get different. Yeah. You get different, different amount of swings at the plate. Right. And an artist gets the least amount of swings. And yeah, so I think it's harder, harder to be an artist for sure. But it's also more fulfilling. I mean, I don't say it's more fulfilling, but obviously artists are artists for a reason and they're getting to do what they love and that's fulfilling to them. Right, right. Yeah, and clearly that's something that motivates you is to be around artists that do what they love and are um, successful at that and are doing something that you love primarily. (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, again, I think it goes back to, you know, we were talking about the Who and B. Townsend earlier. Like, yeah. You know, I just, you know, to me, it's, you know, I'm, I am attracted to authenticity. And mm-hmm. it started with that. You know, it started with my obsessive fandom of, of, of Pete Townsend and the Who at age 10. Yeah. You know, and I feel like a through line of our roster is that it's all authentic. You know, no one is doing something because they think it's going to, they're going to catch the wave at the right time. Right. They're artists. They're they're You, you represent yeah. people that are expressing themselves yeah. through music in a particular yeah. way that, that that's, yeah. that's true to themselves. Right. Yep. Exactly. And <clears throat> speaking of being true to oneself, um, you've been involved quite a bit in um, advocating for uh, voting rights, um, for yeah. diversity, um, and uh, you also were through some uh, some of your efforts behind the Biden campaign recently. Yeah. Um, what were some of the? Have you always been kind of politically oriented in that respect, and or is it just kind of the the times now that that called for that uh, uh, to use your, um, you know, this uh, somewhat of a soapbox that that you have and a. And a at least, a, um, you know, a little bit of a megaphone yeah. to, to try to enact change? Well, I've always been activism motivated and starting in the early 2000s, I started being politically motivated and active. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first project I did around an election was in 2004. I worked with um, the author Dave Eggers also a fellow Chicagoan, as we discussed, mm-hmm. um, former Chicagoan. He lives out here now. But we did a project together called The Future Dictionary for America and The Future Soundtrack for America. And that was to raise money for progressive causes around the 2004 election in hopes of getting John Kerry elected. And, you know, The Future Dictionary was a bunch of writers coining definitions for the America that we, we wanted to see going forward. And we had writers from Paul Oster to Kurt Vonnegut to, you know, on down the road. It's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty great. And then the future soundtrack had, you know, which was just a CD at that point. You could buy the book with the CD or the CD separately and, or the book separately. And the CD, you know, we had, God, I can't, can't I mean, I know I remember Blink 182 or I remember Death Cab, you know, I think Bright Eyes. It just a bunch of great artists. So we did mm-hmm. that. Um, 2012, I was on, um, Obama's entertainment advisory committee for his reelection campaign. And his kind of a reaction to what the lethargy in the, in the entertainment world, I was feeling about Obama's second term. I was in Chicago. I want to say for Lollapalooza. And I went to the Obama's headquarters was cross street. Um, and I went in, I met with a couple folks on the surrogate team, surrogates in an mm-hmm. election and a campaign surrogates, a surrogate is someone who does something on behalf of a campaign that's not employed by the campaign. So it'd be an artist playing a rally. It could be a political, you know, it could be Cory Booker stumping for Biden. You know, it could mm-hmm. be, you know, it could be Harrison Ford stumping for, you know, whoever. So, um, the surrogates managers manage those people. So I went in and talked to them and they were talking about the frustration of not getting the music community involved or like the mm. kind of the younger, hipper music community involved. So went back to San Francisco, met with Dave, and we came up with the idea of doing something called uh, called 90 Days, 90 Reasons. 
which mm-hmm. for us was a low bar of entry, where we were going to every day for 90 days leading up to the election, we were going to get a person of interest, you know, an actor, a comedian, a musician, filmmaker, whatever, to write a reason as to why they're supporting Obama. We posted that every day. So that's what we did in 2012. 2016, I was on Hillary's Entertainment Advisory Committee. Um, and then Dave and I, that year, we did 30 Days, 30 Songs, which were 30 artists writing songs about why they were... It was supposed to be either why you're supporting Hillary or why you're not supporting Trump. It ended up pretty much all being anti-Trump songs for the most part. But we posted <laughs> yeah, those. It tends to happen. <laughs> every day. Um, and and we raised, you know, a little bit of money because it was on streaming services. But a lot of attention. Um I mean, a little bit of money. You told me like a lot of, it sounded like a lot to me. No, no, that was 2020 was, 2020 is when when we cracked the code on that. So, Ah, okay. So when we did these, we put these up and they went on Spotify and the, the, you know, Apple, you know, et cetera. But streaming is no surprise, doesn't pay super well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, you know, you need, you need to accumulate a lot of streams that happen over a period of time. And when you're putting songs out, you know, 15 days before election, there's not a lot of money raised. So, but it, it got a lot of press and that was, that mm-hmm. was part of the goal too. So in 2020, we took, we, you know, Bandcamp, which is an independent music platform during COVID started, started something called Bandcamp Friday. Yep. What they did is they waived fees for labels and artists on the one, the first Friday a month. So that more money went to the artists, mm-hmm. you know, who are struggling during COVID. So, but Bandcamp Friday also became a thing. So it also became like, you know, a day where artists started putting out unique releases, live records, et cetera, because they can make more money that day. And some of them were limited to 24 hours to create urgency. One of our clients, Pup, did that last summer, summer of 2020. And we were very pleasantly surprised how much money it made. And in 24 hour period. Mm -hmm. And that gave me the idea of, Let's do a compilation to raise money for progressive causes. And we did it. And the first one had 40 songs. And we raised, um, I think, $350,000 grossed. And then mm-hmm. we were able to donate about 250000 wow. of it. And it did so well, we decided to do a second one a month later. And that one, we had to scramble because, you know, we did not have... First, we're like the first couple weeks after, we're like, no way are we doing another <laughs> one. That was crazy. It was so much work. The clearances, all of it. Yeah. Eggers, the eternal optimist. And when I told Dave, I said, Dave, if you go land, if you go land a couple big acts, I'll do the second one. And he went out and he got David Byrne in Arcade Fire. And then we away we went. And the second one, we got an unreleased Pearl Jam track, which certainly put it wow. on a different plane. Yeah, really. And, we, and that one, we raised another, you know, I, I want to correct myself. I think the first one was we raised 300000 and the second one we raised closer, we raised about four. And between wow. the two, we were able to donate $550,000 to progressive causes around the election. And, you know, both of them, a lot of the money went to voters' rights organizations, which obviously felt great because, you know, that impacted greatly the election yeah um so yeah so but you know 
that was like a five minute humble brag. I'm sorry. Um, but that's just, what, I'm that's what that I'm, work, that's what I'm right? here for. I, I set you up and you knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Well, I think for us though, I mean, I think for me and you know, none of my political work would be, would not be possible without my clients being interested. I mean, death cab in 2004 did the vote for change tour, mm-hmm. um, which people probably don't remember, but it was a tour organized by a bunch of managers to try to go, go to swing States and get people to vote for carry. Um, you know, Pearl Jam, Dixie Chicks, Bruce Springsteen, John Mellencamp, Dave Matthews, et cetera, all participated in it. Um, Death Cab has signed up for every one of these projects I've done. They've been hmm. pretty much the first band to sign up. So their soapbox will always be much bigger and wider. <laughs> yeah. And I'm here to help build that soapbox for them. Yeah. But, you know, my relationships in the industry is what I'm able to really utilize to, to do my work around campaigns. So yeah. I mean, I also you s- this year, yeah, I was right. No, what did you do this year? I dusted off my uh, keyboard and I, I published four op-eds about the election. Um, hadn't really done much published writing since the late nineties. Wow. Uh, hearkening back to my, yeah, to you your know, college story of being a music right. writer. Yeah. Where, when I moved to San Francisco, I continued to freelance for a f- couple of years until I started being too busy. Mm-hmm. I wrote a couple op-eds for Billboard, and then I wrote one for BoingBoing.net, and I wrote one for McSweeney's. And right. it was really fun. So, yeah. That was, I w- it was excruciating because it takes me so long to write now. Oh, you my know, God. Being on yeah. practice, but, but it was really fun to do it and to see it published. Yeah, I've never had the feeling of being so in practice with writing that it doesn't take a long time, so I can't relate. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's always as a yeah. grind for me to write anything yeah. that, you know, it's just like, just takes me so long. It's so, it's so difficult yeah. to do, and I, I respect writers so much. Um, yeah. you know, me too. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind with music and politics is just social media, and like somebody will just yeah. start yapping about how artists should just stick to music and not focus on yeah. politics. I think a lot of that has changed, but you know, for, yeah. for the better, I think. Um, but, uh, what, what was your, what, talk a little bit about what your feeling is in that intersection of artists and politics. I, you know, like I don't, I, I think, you know, one thing we can credit Donald Trump for is making culture is politics and politics is culture. At this mm-hmm. point. I mean, maybe right. not as much as it was seven months ago while he was still in office, but it still is. Um, you know, the silver lining to Trump being elected if any, was that I think a generation of people are now politically engaged, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, look, not every artist or person of notoriety needs to be rage against the machine. You know, right. I think, you know, and not everyone has to say anything. You know, look, it's it's everyone's choice if they want to be, you know, get politically, be politically active, get politically involved. Um, you know, the goal with our projects is always providing a low barrier of entry to do something because it's can be very intimidating for someone who hasn't spoken up to even know how to get in, even mm-hmm. know what to do, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I was so impressed with how the music community really stepped up around the election last year. And some of the artists who really had a lot to lose, you know, speaking out against Trump. And, you know, when you're an artist like Taylor Swift, you're going to turn off a whole lot of your fan base when you do that. I mean, remember what happened? To the, I mean, obviously times have changed. But remember what happened to the Dixie chicks back in 2004? 
Right. You know, right. they, they, they were banned from a number of country radio stations because they spoke out against Bush. Yeah. Yeah. So, I remember that. You mm-hmm. know, times, times have changed, but you know, still it, you know, it does take some courage and you have to realize that you're, you're potentially going to lose some fans and people just, people stepped it up, you know? And, and, uh, there were a lot of artists when we started, cause I started talking to the Biden campaign pretty much right after, right after he, he was the presumed nominee and started talking to the music industry about getting involved. And a lot of artists did not want to support Biden and a lot of artists ended up not supporting Biden, but were, were very outspoken about voting. And that's obviously important too, you know? And I think, I think the industry and I think artists are now more comfortable speaking up for causes. Yeah, I think that's an, it's an important distinction is causes versus a candidate, right? I mean, yeah, or at least being against a candidate by giving them an opportunity to support certain causes, which you kind of are, you were in that if you were supporting voting rights, clearly you were anti-Trump. And if you were supporting, um, yeah. Uh, you know, other, other, other causes and, um, that it, it, it speaks to your political stance. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So it's so, and I think now like there's some, I think people, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, people kind of recovering from, from the Trump administration. And then the last year, yeah. now you're starting to see some mental health initiatives happening, you know, music mm-hmm. industry kind of getting behind mental health initiatives, which is so important always, but yeah. I think particularly important as the world opens up post COVID. And that's really wonderful. I have a strong attachment to the mental health world. My mother's bipolar and, and uh, mm-hmm. in 1978, she founded an organization called the national depressive manic depressive association, which is now called the, it's now called the depressive bipolar support Alliance and is based in Chicago. Um, but you know, it's, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And I feel like I'm getting more engaged in that now, um, too, but, um, you know, do you encourage your artists to, to, to help you in that regard or or if they're looking for a cause, you kind of steer them. I I think my artists, again, you know, most of my artists have a really good sense of what, you know, it's rare that we get an artist saying, I get an artist saying, I need something to care about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our artists like Bethany from Best Coast has been very outspoken about mental health for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone kind of has their, you know, people have what moves them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We just try to support them the best way we can. Yeah, and in the live music industry, I had um, um, I had Hillary Gleason who runs uh, Backline, which is a mental health support yeah. organization for live music for the live music industry. Which she does a lot of great work with that, and that organization does a lot of great work. And it's oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, all the causes have kind of like in the in the way that they're kind of. Um, uh, gaining exposure has really changed over the years. Remember the the No Nukes concert in like 1970s when that was like yeah, I mean, that was a big fucking yeah. deal, right? For a bunch of artists to get together for a cause, right? Now it's like it's just as far away as 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 a, as a camera and, a, and it's streaming and um, publicizing it via um, you know via Instagram or what have you. Yeah, exactly, and that's it. Everyone has you know everyone has their own channel, literally. yeah. And right. during COVID, when people were stuck in front of their computers or their phones, that channel was amplified in a way, yeah, in, in a big way. So, you know, if I if I look at, you know, one of the positives of COVID is that it gave artists, you know, that larger 
platform and it gave them the time to really dig in. Look, I do not pretend to think I would have been able to be, be as active as I was around the election last year if I was living my normal life and having mm-hmm. to travel a lot for work and driving my son to and from school and all the things that come with being, you know, and the social obligations. Um, so, I mean, also let's, I mean, we could also just, you know, be honest about the fact that without COVID, Trump would have walked into a second term anyway, right? I mean, the guy barely lost even after what he held, yeah, the mishandling no. of it. We don't, we don't need to turn this into a political thing, but I'm just saying like, so how were how how did how did a lot of your artists fare with uh with COVID and having that kind of that we're talking about the positives of um, downshifting during that period? Um, obviously, you saw um, and and having um, sh- being able to shift focus towards other things that maybe you hadn't prioritized pre COVID for one reason or another. You clearly in managing a diverse um, uh, roster of artists you're seeing a panoply of different ways of looking yeah. at this and of, of what have you, have you seen any like commonalities in the way that your artists have kind of handled this period? No, I mean, I think it's been different for everybody. I feel like, um, you know, everyone's done okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been harder for some artists, some harder for some artists than others, you know, some, had a hard time writing during it yeah um, at first some have really enjoyed being home you know because i mean everyone obviously went through different stuff i mean you know the the corona coaster was real right so yeah, you know there ups and downs and some people had some people had uh you know some people had you know good days and bad days good months bad months but i think you know for for many of my artists it was a really nice opportunity to, to just be home and create yeah you know they're not having to go on the road or have the other obligations that we normally have, you know? Right. Look, we all took a very large hit financially. Yeah. Right. You know, anyone in the live music sector got pummeled. Yeah. So, and, you know, as a manager with the type of artist we manage, most of our money comes off of touring. So that was not, um, that was not, uh, was not, not a, uh, not that part of it wasn't good. Yeah. So, but, but you know there there are other benefits to it, and I think people started to realize that as we got as we got. And just tell me tell me a little bit about how you're seeing things kind of come back from from uh, in your roster and what you're seeing sort of looking forward to. You know, we're we're seeing a lot of things coming back from festivals in the summer, uh, a lot of tours being booked in the fall. Kind of what's your uh, what's your outlook? I mean, my outlook's positive. I mean, it's all happening so quickly. You know, if you had, if we were talking in February, I, I didn't even know if we'd be seeing live shows this year. Mm-hmm. And now it feels like we're going to be see. you know, again, anything. <laughs> don't take anything for yeah, granted yeah, yeah. anymore. But it does feel like we're going to now see, you know, full capacity, you know, shows and festivals, especially outdoors. And, you know, of course, there's always a chance that there's going to be, you know, an uptick in cases in a particular city or state, and that might affect the band on tour. But I think, you know, right now it's all feeling like it's moving in a very positive direction. Yeah. But, um, no, I think the fall is going to be, you know, unless something happens, the fall is going to feel pretty normal. And I think next year, I know next year is going to have, if you're a live music fan, it is going to be a great year for choices. Yeah. Choices. (laughs) Yeah. Live touring artist. It's going to be, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's going to be, um, you know, 
every band in the world is going to be on tour because every band in the world has been off of tour for the last year plus. So there's going to be a lot of artists on the road, a lot of competition to sell tickets. But, you know, for a fan, it'll be great because everyone you want to see, you can see. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all works out next year. Um, but I think uh, the good news is that we're all going to be able to do something we all love, which is see artists on stage playing in front of lots of people. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jordan, for joining me. I really, um, really appreciate you taking the time to kind of tell me a little bit about what you're doing. And, uh, um, you know, you've, you've just, um, uh, you created such a, such an amazing, uh, career of, uh, of, of staying true to yourself. And that's really admirable. And I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun to chat. I'm sorry. I have to, sorry. I have to jump, but yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Perfect. Th- right. Thanks again, Jordan. Thanks, John. Take Appreciate care. It. Yeah, so nice to meet you. Good to meet right. you. Bye. Bye. Okay, that was Jordan Curlin. Uh, really loved having Jordan here for uh, this interview. Um, you know, he's um, he's self admittedly super lucky to have known uh, from early on what he wanted to do. Um, I love that. I admire that. Uh, I got to admit, like uh, the view from his uh, from his house of the San Francisco skyline, I'm kind of jealous of those people that knew exactly what they wanted to do from early on and are like really good at it. It's just amazing. And uh, you know, he he says that he's lucky that 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 has occurred in his life. Um, and luck was kind of a theme in this uh, interview. We also talked about uh, you know how um, you know there's a lot of luck that's involved in this industry, and in that uh, you know quote uh, all we can do is uh is try to predict what someone's gonna like you know and uh sometimes that can happen and sometimes uh it doesn't you know and um uh jordan also says that he was lucky to um you know he wanted to be able to choose what he wanted to work on and that's kind of the independent mind of an entrepreneur in this uh in the music business and uh you know i really i really admire that um you know jordan's as authentic to his own vision uh as the artists are that he represents. He says he's attracted to authenticity uh, and Jordan exudes authenticity in what he's done. And uh, I really love that. Um, I find it so intriguing and interesting. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I love Jordan so much and uh, was so happy to have him. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in again for this special episode. And I want to thank especially Jordan Kurland uh, once again for being here on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Road Case. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can Email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at roadcasepod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. <laughs>